Um, and this language just brought me to such a high level and allowed me to focus on the business problem um, and not worry about all the code I had to write. Like, I forgot the quotes, like you could write at the uh, speed of thought, like you could code at the speed of thought. It was just, I think that's one of the phrases we were using back then. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with us, we have our regular panelists, which we'll go around and do brief introductions, and then we've got a couple announcements, and then we'll get to introducing our guests. So we'll go to Bob, then to Stephen, then to Adam, and then to Marshall. I'm Bob Terrio, and I am a J enthusiast, and I remain working on that wiki and the mines down below everything else, but it's, it's coming along. I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm a Q developer and an APL programmer and an enthusiast for both. Also for Bob. I like Bob. I'm an APL jack of all trades, I guess it's called. Working full-time, but both teaching and coding APL. Named. Named Adam Prozewski. Sorry. <laughs> I forgot that, okay? It happens. I, know. <laughs> I forgot to look at my mailbox this morning, so... And I'm Marshall Lockbaum. Uh, I used to be a J programmer, then a dialogue developer, and now I am the BQN uh, designer. And as mentioned before, I'm your host, Connor, a polyglot programmer, array language enthusiast. And yeah, I guess we'll, we'll hop into our two announcements. So we'll go to Adam first and then to Marshall. Um, what's my announcement? <laughs> you have an anti-podcast <laughs> podcast, that episode that's coming out. Oh, that's the announcement. Okay. Um, yeah, so you might have heard about the and uh, APL Annotation as a Tool of Thought podcast. And uh, Richard Park and I have been recording another episode that's now available for you to listen. I haven't gotten around to making it a proper podcast along the old avenues, Connor, <laughs> sorry. And uh, have other things going on. And also we're considering changing its name to something that's a little bit less of a mouthful or maybe taking the current title and making it into a subtitle so you can have everybody's opinions on that, considering... Uh, calling it beautiful squiggles and then subtitle notation as a tool of thought. What do you think? That's a good one. Well, mm. I've never heard I've never I've never heard APL referred to as a squiggle language, but okay. Well, it works. That happens all the time. Squiggle cast. Isn't there a language called squiggle? Well, there is. Yeah. I think I like the fact that APL's in it. How about glyph cast? Glyph cast. That's nicer. Mm. Glyph is nicer than squiggle in my opinion. You got to ask the people. You got to have a poll. That's what you got to do. Yeah, but they don't. We don't even have like an email address they can contact us on, or a proper website yeah, with its Twitter. own URL. You can do polls, polls on Twitter. Okay, I'm doing Twitter. Yeah, you just okay, choose fine. choose yeah, four that. you like, and then say if you have your own suggestions, and then uh, yeah, then go from there. Okay. You you know with podcasts it's generally not good practice to try and play hard to get, and I think you're playing hard <laughs> to get right now. <laughs> Well, I don't want to register the domain until we have the name. I can't decide on the name until people can contact us at contact at whatever the domain is. So you see, it's a deadlock. I feel too like if you if you do beautiful squiggles, it's like see even the people that use the language like call them squiggles. They don't even know what they are. It's like no. <laughs> Anyways, we'll wait. We'll link for, to the poll in the show notes, and Adam will okay. set it up for a couple of weeks so people can go and uh, opine what they think it should be uh, should be called. All right, over to you, Marshall. All right, so my announcement is not really my announcement, um, but we are, at the time of recording, we are six days into the advent of code, which is um, uh, programming 
I, I don't know if you'd call it a competition, but a site where programming problems are posted one a day, like an advent calendar uh, for the 25 days of Christmas. Um, and many, many people are solving this in various array languages. Uh, so I've been tracking the people who publish uh, BQN solutions and there are 37 people have done at least one uh, day in BQN and published the, their solution to that, uh, which is really cool to me. I will probably have a list of BQN repositories out by the time this podcast is out. Uh, but there's also lists on um, the APL wiki. I think the page is just advent of code as well as the K wiki um, for K specifically and APL specifically, of course. Uh, and there are various leaderboards that people can talk about. Um, and yeah, lots of activity going on. Go ahead, Stephen. I've got an announcement too. The annual advent of code competition brings out a lot of Q veterans out of their winter hidey holes and public publishing some solutions. And their solutions, even to quite simple problems, are sometimes quite startling and not things I would have thought of. Uh, so um, unfortunately, a lot of these solutions are shared on private forums. So I've made it my mission this year as one of the cubists, the curators of, of good Q things on the internet, to uh, gather them up from the Iverson College Vector Dojo, from the K4 Topic Box, from the KX community, and write them up and study them. And you can find this all online at github.com slash cubists slash study Q. Uh, I'm struggling to keep up with a torrent of solutions that are coming in. And I can foresee that this may be uh, still with us when the last of my mince pies has long disappeared. Um, but I do plan to get through all 25 problems and write up and study the various solutions. A lot to learn from, me included. Yeah, maybe we should do we should do a a full because we could talk about this for twenty minutes. I'm sure we should do a full advent of code episode. So we'll we'll throw links in the show notes to everything Marshall mentioned, Stephen mentioned, uh, a couple other repos. I have one. Adam's got his hand up. Yeah, um, I just wanted to mention for those that are doing advent of code in APL, it seems to be in all these array languages. It's actually fairly easy to solve many of the problems, and a big part of the problem is parsing the input. Mm -hmm. And so I. Uh, I created a video a while back um, about using Dialog APL's Quad CSV, which is really nice for parsing a lot of that input you get there. So we can put a link to that as well. If you're working on it, that might help you. Yeah. So maybe we'll create a whole section. I'm not sure if we have sections in our show notes. Um, but yeah, check out in the show notes links to a bunch of Advent of Code resources, other people that are doing them in a plethora of array languages. And then maybe sometime in January or at the end of December, we'll we'll do an episode where we choose a couple of our favorite problems and talk about, you know, the benefits of solving them in different array languages. The problem today, I won't say what it was. Day six was, oh, I was beautiful, beautiful. And it, I, I thought I did it nicely. And then I went and looked at Jay Fode's solution, the former CTO of Dialogue. And like his was like, I don't know, two or three characters shorter, which is like, doesn't sound like much, but the solution was already only like 10 characters. And I was, it was a use of uh, dyadic iota, with making an observation of the problem and I like stared at it for a bit and I was like, how does that? And then I was like, Oh wow, that's so beautiful. Anyways, links in the description. We'll do a whole discussion about this later. And with that, we will transition to introducing our guest today, who is a panelist emeritus. <laughs> um, he was on, I think it was episodes 
two, three, and four, or three, four, and five, three episodes in a row as a recurring panelist, Nick Pissaris, who has been programming in queue since 2006, I believe, and I think is most well-known, at least sort of in the community at large, for having two different books on Q, uh, Q Tips and Q for Fun, I think they're both called. Fun Q. Or Fun Q. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not uh, that's not going to translate too well to uh, audio, but uh, you can take a guess. <laughs> um, anyway, so yes, uh, Nick was on as a panelist for uh, three episodes where we talked about a various uh, number of things. So we'll link those in the show notes if you want to go back and, and listen to those three old, very old, and right when we were starting the podcast episodes. But today we're bringing Nick on, I believe, because we just had John Ernest on where we talked a ton about... Um, Kay, and we're going to have him again on in the future, I think, in one of our, our next episodes. But we thought it'd be a good time to bring on a Q expert, which Nick is, of course, and talk about a little bit more about the Q language and sort of teaching Q, which he has a lot of experience with. And uh, from that, I'm not actually sure if we've ever given Nick the chance to do sort of uh, an in-length you know, history of take us back to when you discovered computing. Um, but if you want, maybe uh, give us one of those and then we can hop into talking about Q and, you know, the advantages of Q maybe versus some of the other array languages. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Connor. Um, I guess, yeah, if we want to go back uh, when I first got experience with computer programming, that would only be pretty much when I got out of, uh, out of college. But my first experience with computers, I had an Atari of 800 as a kid. My father would, you know, bring back the, the, the cassette recorders uh, and play the, the computer uh, program into the machine. Uh, then we had the five and a uh, half floppies and things like that. Um, so I had experience with computers and, and understanding how they worked, but all my friends would become, you know, they took computer science in high school and I never did. I was more interested in um, the sciences, physics more, more specifically. And uh, all through college, I kept studying more physics. Uh, then I studied Chinese and I realized I wanted to get uh, a job and, and uh, neither of those were going, to, were going to help me with that. Um, so I started studying uh, economics. And when I got my first job at Morgan Stanley, they hired me to do the um, you know, support for, uh, I guess, mainframe job scheduling and things like that. Um, and on the side, I had to learn Perl to kind of automate my daily routine. And so that's when I, I found out that I actually loved computer programming. Um, who's to say who I'd be or where I'd be had I been a computer science major to start with. Um, but for, from that point on, I just started learning as much as I could, trying to catch up with what everybody else knew. Uh, I remember one time trying to understand in Java what was the difference between a hash map um, and a... Ha uh, a tree a, map? No, there's, there's, they call it... a. And it's, I forget, there's, there's one that has the lock on it and one that doesn't have the lock on it. The very first original ones all had locks. Oh, and then yeah, they introduced, yeah. it's like, a, um, anyway, so they, they just gave them. Concurrent hash map, maybe? Can't remember. Like a hash, hash dictionary or a hash map. They have two different ways of, of referring to them. And it turns out under the hood, they're, they're both hashed, except that one has a lock on every operation. And the other one forces you to put the lock on it. Um, and it took me forever to, to understand um, that they really were still hash maps. Um, but nonetheless, you know, all those details of computer programming, um, I picked up on myself, the, um, started with Perl. Then, uh, I went to, uh, on a trading desk, I learned VBA, which killed me. Uh, then I went into, um, actually I learned Java and I built a whole bunch of GUIs using uh, swing. 
And then I moved on to C++ on the trading side because all this time I was in finance, um, I was actually on a automated option market making desk. And um, after all the GUIs were made and built, I kind of wanted to move myself more into the business logic of things. And so I, um, I started learning C++ and the STL was like, to me, it was beautiful. Like uh, so many times in, in my study of science, I was like always asking questions like, in biology, like, how does this work and why does it work that way? And they kept telling me, don't worry, you'll learn that when you get to chemistry. Uh, and then I thought, okay, chemistry. And so I learned chemistry and I kept asking questions like, how, how does this work? And they, they said, don't worry, you'll figure that out and understand that when you get to physics. And I said, great. So I'm going to take physics and all the same questions. Oh, how does this work? How does this work? Uh, and then, you know, halfway through my college career, at some point they said, you just have to believe. And uh, I was very, very disturbed at that point. And I kind of lost my religion when I, you know, I thought physics was the one true answer and I kind of lost it. Um, the, same, uh, it the same thing happened to me with the, the STL. I really thought it was so beautiful and so elegant. But then when I found like, for example, the bit vector was not a vector of bits and you couldn't get a reference to one of the bits that was in there because it was just specialized. I was like, oh, that's not fair. You know, you have all these operations, but in this one particular case, it doesn't work. Or at least at the time, probably it's fixed since then. Maybe, Connor, you'd know. Nope. If you use bind second on a non-const function, uh, like you, you couldn't do it. It just wouldn't compile. Like all functions that you called bind on had to be const at the time in particular cases. And I thought, well, there's nothing particular that needs to be constant about binding a function to it. Uh, and so that I kind of, after all that elegance, um, and I thought this was just really well implemented, um, you know, the things I tried, I tried to use it everywhere and all the um, algorithms. And every time I tried, I'd run into another problem. Uh, so I kind of said, yes, it's nice, but let me keep going here. And at that time, it was around 2006, I had finished a master's in computational finance degree. And I moved off uh, to Hong Kong. It was still within uh, the firm I was at, and my job had to change because they didn't have automated market making in uh, Hong Kong at the time. And so I joined a team that was uh, converting um, StatR uh, trading algorithms from Java into KDB. And I was kind of like, this is crazy. Like, you know, I had an interview and they're like, well, what's your favorite language to, to, to manage data with? And I was like, well, of course, you know, it's got to be Perl. You know, it's got hashes uh, and it's got lists and you can have hashes of hashes of lists or lists of hashes. Of, and, then, you know, the depth goes on. And I really thought that was just truly fantastic, along with the regular expressions that it had as well. And um, the, the person was like, well, no, I think you, you'll, you'll figure it out. But KDB is, uh, is actually, you know, far superior to that when dealing with data. And to, so I was like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I, couldn't, I, I didn't believe it. Um, and so that, I was just go, about to go on vacation at that time. And so I printed out the abridged. So at the time on the KX websites, there were two documents. Um, I think with Don Orth had written one and uh, Arthur had written the other. They were called the, like, the, KD, the abridged introduction to KDB and the abridged introduction to Q. Or, or even there was like a, a simple introduction to Q and KDB as well. So there are two pairs of documents and the abridged version, I thought, well, why would you want to read that um, if it's abridged? But it turns out the way Arthur writes, uh, that's abridged. Like it was just the true and utter essence of the language. And it was, it actually had to me in my mind, more information in it than the wordy longer version that had lots of English in it. Uh, so I had printed those out and I went on my one or two week holiday and all I had with me 
was these printed out papers and I couldn't even test it on a, on a computer. And I would pour through the documents trying to understand what is, what is this vector language. And as I, as I went through it, um, by the time I got back to the computer, I was like, I was raring to go. I was ready to test everything out. And every time I would try something, like it wasn't documented. Like I try, you know, a different type of um, a left-hand operand to one of the, the functions to, to the operators. And it would do something completely different than I had expected. Uh, and it truly blew me away how like, there was so much, what I felt genius in the language that was just only in the author's mind. And he, I, at the time, I did not know there was a legacy of APL uh, and J in there. You know, that obviously led to the, 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 the overloads that were in the functions. But in my mind, I was like, well, who, why would he think of this? You know, and, and how did he imagine to, to like make the, uh, the function do, do that? It was just, it was just so much of like a treasure hunt. It was like, what else can the programming language do? And so that really grabbed me. Um, in the process, we were, like I said, migrating Java to KDB for all the back tests and, and the trading algorithms. And the amount of speed up that we got, you know, overnight processes that took four hours would take, you know, like 10 minutes every morning. Um, just the, the true advances in just, you know, what you could do and test new ideas and new new ways of new signals and things like that were uh, li quite liberating. So I was out in Hong Kong by myself doing all this and I didn't have anybody to talk to. I had the manual uh, and just playing with the, the software. And lucky for me, I had like a direct line into Arthur uh, to ask questions or su suggest uh, improvements. So from 2006 to 2012 or so, um, it was, you know, three years of uh, quant trading using KDB and then another three years of building an option market making system in KDB. Uh, and so those were actually two different dimensions of the language. On the one hand, it was just massive data sets, uh, analyzing and grouping or doing huge massive as of joins. Uh, and the other side was high frequency trading, which pushed, you know, I mean, if you're going to really be doing high frequency trading, of course, it should be in C++, but if you you don't mind to be slightly slower, uh, you can iterate very fast when you have a, a trading engine that's up and running and you have a new idea or even, a, you know, a simulator and you can just inject a new definition of your, your function uh, into the process and see how it behaves. Obviously, you should be doing back testing along with that. Um, but the um, trying to use KDB in a, or, you know, Q, not necessarily as a database, but as a programming language in a very high frequency world, you know, I build a profiler to time all the functions and I consistently found certain functions just were too slow for my, for my needs. Uh, one of them being like left join and, or as of join or, or um, and so I'd give the feedback to Arthur and, you know, he's like, yeah, you're right. We should re rewrite the whole function like this. And then he would re-implement it. Um, so there was always that back and forth uh, which was just truly fantastic. After that, uh, that stint ended, I had all these ideas about the language, having learned it from firsthand and not being taught by anybody or, and not really even seeing it being used as a database. Like I had been using it as a language to build trading applications. And I thought my perspective was different than um, anyone else had ever spoken with. And I had very strong opinions on syntax uh, or you know how to write it efficiently and, and things like that. So as I left, I wanted to get, to, for two reasons, I wanted to write a book. Uh, the, the first one was I had all these cool libraries that I had written at another party, at another firm. 
Um, and I was going to have to rewrite them again wherever I, wherever I went. And I figured, why not donate these ideas to the community in large, uh, at large so that um, if I ever leave again, I can just take them because they've already been, in some sense, open source. So I spent my time from scratch rewriting a lot of the, the core libraries, whether it's logging, a timer library, um, the pro profiling, the code profiling and things like that. And so I wrote all that code and then I built a book. I wrote a book to use all of that and explain how those, how those libraries worked. But I wanted to do it in a way that showed what I thought was best of breed coding uh, and um, explain the things that I had probably uh, only, Uniquely, I had an understanding of how it worked because I had already spoken to Arthur and asked him to change a lot of things. So I incorporated all of that with a with a with a bent towards computational finance because that's kind of where my mind was. Uh, and so I, I combined those two things and I I created the uh, the book Q Tips because I really wanted them, I really wanted it to be a list of tips for people when they're coming up and learning the new language. I really did believe Q-tips was, was a very clear and yes, cheeky name to the, to the book. Um, I, I recall that someone said to me, you know, because they thought I was Hong Kong, I didn't know what a Q-tip was. Um, they said, you know that in America, you, we use Q-tips to clean our ears. And I was like, yes, I, I, realize, that, I realize that it is, a, it is a play on words, but uh, I, I'm keeping the title, thank you. Um, so that's, that's kind of the background. I mean, and since then, I mean, we can go into you know, other things. Um, I've just been using Q and KDB at big banks, um, more on the data analytics side than actually uh, harness, you know, writing and supporting the database myself. Although, of course, I know how that works and I, and I help with those teams, but um, I'm really focused on um, how to transform businesses with the data and the analytics rather than build uh, on the database side. Amazing story that you went through all of uh, Perl, Java, C++, VBA, might be missing one or two, but you went through like a plethora of languages, ended up in an interview because you were switching offices to a different country. And then they, they say, what's your favorite language? You say Perl. And then they say, you're wrong. Well, I mean, maybe not wrong, but like for data, for, for data, you know, shuffling and, um, uh, you'll learn that Q and KDB is the best language. And then you go away, you come back. And you start playing around and you said, you know, there's a ton of stuff that's not documented and you're running into a ton of overloading. And your reaction, you say, is that your your like curiosity is just like super peaked and you're like, what's going on here? There's like something that's that's genius about like all these ideas. Uh, can you speak to like because I'm sure there's like in general two groups of folks the groups of the, the the group of people that have your reaction and then the other group that just gets like confused and frustrated and um just sort of like throws their hands up and is like i'm expecting x and i'm getting y z and you know a b and c uh and and i'm sure the story has changed from i guess what was that 15 years ago roughly uh but like what is it that led you to being more curious than more frustrated, I guess. Well, so there are a few examples. Like there's this an operator, an operator of VS, right? Which takes a, a single value and turns it into a vector. Mm -hmm. You apply that to a number and depending on what the left-hand operator is, you can actually, um, like if you take a floating point, oh, sorry, if you take an integer number 
and you, um, you do a 0b, a Boolean, it will give you the binary, binary representation of that integer. If you put 0x0, it'll give you the hexadecimal representation of that number. And I'd never seen, like, with like two or three characters, it let me look so deep down into the machinery of a number. Like, I'd never, I don't know any other language which would let me take an integer and easily just I want to see what is the binary representation of this number, and it, it just it allowed me to uh, embrace the 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 actual compute the language under the hood and how it's represented. It brought me closer to how things were implemented, even though the abstractions were so high. It's like this this I had been learning programming, like I said, all by myself, and for a language to expose to me all of those primitives, I felt was was truly amazing. Um, Another on the other side of that is the same function um, s exactly the opposite the uh, sv where you take a vector and return a single value. If you give it a list of symbols and you uh, call sv on it, it will concatenate them together and join them by a dot. But if you give a file handle and a list of symbols uh, and you join them together it combines them with the path operator, the, the path, uh, the backslash on Unix or forward slash on Windows. And I was like, why is it doing this? Like, why does the way it joins these symbols depend on the actual type of the, 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 the strings I'm passing in? But ultimately, it's what is most useful. That's this, this language was like, what is most useful to do in this particular case? And when you're joining a file name with an extension .txt, you're going to be using dots. But when you're joining a path with another file name or a directory name, you're going to be using backslash on it. And so most of the things in the language, when you ask, why is it doing that? The answer is typically, well, what's the most useful thing that it should be doing? Um, that, that motto um, has stayed with, with Arthur uh, for the longest time. And I know that K6, I believe it was K6, uh, what Ernest was, uh, John Ernest was talking about a lot of the way things were going to work was because he was implementing it and testing it on advent of code, uh, going back to that topic. Every week, someone would post a solution and be like, what can I do to the language itself to make that even simpler? And then he would like implement a new operator to like throw away half of the code so that it would just be basically in, in the function. And so what is most useful in any particular case has really been driving that language. And to me, at building a trading platform or a backtesting platform, that the language was very, very useful. Uh, it had all the things I needed. Um, and when, like I said, I mentioned when I needed something that it didn't have, it was like, you know, a day or two later, it would be there. Um, and so I just love that, that close relationship with the, the machine, the, the language, and even the author. And that's what really got me going. So also to clarify, when you say you're going back and forth with Arthur, is he working at KX at this point in time? And then yeah, 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 yeah. And then implementing stuff. That was his company. I mean, it was his company with like three other people or something. Right. And so at that point, it's not like uh, has Q been created at, at 2006? Yeah. And and so he's adding things, not like primitives necessarily, but like extensions to the language, because like the it, as far as I know. Like breaking changes haven't been made to to Q and Q. Right. So so here's an example. Um, you can start a Q process with a dash P, and give it a port number, and that's the port, the listening socket. It will open up a server socket. Um, but 
I wanted to create a naming service, have the port start up as, um, as a, a random port, and then I would uh, register that process with a, a naming service and say, this is my port. I, I didn't want an accidental conflict where two people, all the time, everyone keep using the 5001 port. I wanted to be able to start up on a random port. So I was like, well, can you just, if I give you the infinite, like zero W, if I give you an infinite value, can you treat that as, oh, you figure out the port and bind to it? Because in C++ or, or in, in C, if you bind to port zero, I believe uh, zero will pick one of the, uh, the next available port and bind to it and then let you know what it is. And so in those cases, it's functionality. Uh, yes, the it's not necessarily the language itself, but like it, it is a slash P, if you give it a null value or an infinite value, it'll bind to the next available socket. So certainly use things that were useful for building a trading system. Um, there were other cases where I, I would ask for faster versions of left join, like I mentioned. Um, the very first version of left join um, and this is hard to describe, but if you have a table that has the column um, A and it has null values on it, uh, sorry, it, it doesn't have null values. Let's say they're all filled in, all the left-hand table has all values. And then on the right-hand table, you join in another column A, but it has null values. The original implementation of left join was when it joined it on, if the original table had a value, but the new table had a null value, it would fill in the null value with the value that was already there. That made things very slow. And in fact, it's not what I wanted. Um, so when you get market data coming in in real time, and um, let's say the price disappears, and now it's a null value, I want to know the fact that it's null. Like I love nulls. KDB makes handling nulls so efficient because it has all these operators. Putting a null value there is actually more important for me. I need to know that the price of the stock you know, it's, it's not trading anymore, or, you know, it's stopped quoting. No values are more important to me than filling in with whatever the previous value was. And so when he, he, he between one version and the next, after it was like three, three or three, four, he re-implemented left join to A, make it a bunch of times faster, but also the no values would no longer be filled in. It would just be overwritten. Um, well, he agreed that that was the logical thing to do. Uh, but obviously you say no bracket, uh, breaking changes, well, that, that broke things. And so if you look in the language, you'll see that there's an LJF, a UJF, an AJF, an IJF, and an EJF. The F version is the fill forward version, which he had to go back, the team had to go back and give people that other version, which is slower. I don't know any why, I've never needed it. I don't know why anyone would want it, but they had to put it back in just in case someone wanted to have backwards compatibility. Um, so yeah, so there's platform changes um, and uh, some, sometimes language design changes as well. Interesting. Also too, I, I've realized, I'm not actually sure if we've said Arthur's full name in this episode, and I'm assuming 99% of the listeners have been listening to past episodes, but just in case, Arthur refers to Arthur Whitney, who is one of the protégés of Ken Iverson, who created APL and has created the K family of languages that um, K4 went on to become Q, which is what we're talking about right now. But we... He's kind of like, a, what would you, what, what would we refer to him as? He's like a mythical, like he's a real person, but the legend, yes, the legend of Arthur Whitney, because he doesn't give interviews and he is our number one most requested guest and probably to never appear, but like, we've got our fingers crossed that there might be some special circumstance at maybe, you know, some, some event in the future. Uh, anyways, yeah, we'll throw it Steven. I actually had a conversation with the CEO of, um, of Shakti. 
on exactly this topic last year. And uh, I always, let me see if I can remember this exactly. Stephen, you do know that Arthur will never appear on the Arraycast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I said, we, we don't know that, no, no, though. We I, don't know that. Wait, wait, uh, <laughs> I said, no, I don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, there, There is... We'll, we'll find the links or, uh, to it and throw them in the show notes. There's been, I think, two different interviews, but they were both in sort of conversations that were transcribed um, uh, with, with Arthur Whitney. So he has done some form of an interview. But, yeah, we're holding out hope. We're holding out hope. Um, Adam? Well, now that you mentioned who Arthur Whitney is, for the listeners, uh, these three names you need to know. Arthur, that's Arthur Whitney. Uh, invented and in, keeps inventing K. Roger, that's Roger Huey, who like, more or less invented J together with Ken, that's Ken Iverson, who, well, <laughs> founded all of the stuff that we're doing. Get those names straight. Very, very important. All right, back to Q. So you were curious because it sounds like the, sort of the answer to sort of my original question was that a lot of the quote-unquote what I referred to you know, sort of might be frustration to you. Uh, half the time wasn't even maybe frustration. It was more just like surprising, but immediately you could, you could see the the beauty and the power. Like when you're talking about the binary representation and the hexadecimal, like that very quickly, as soon as you see that, you're not going to be confused. You know what that is. And it's like, wow, like most languages, I'm going to have to hand roll this myself. And the languages that do have something built in, like I know Ruby has a, a, a two underscore s which uh if you give it a number if you call that on a number and you pass it uh, a base it'll do that conversion for you but even that requires you know integer dot four characters parentheses and then the base uh which is actually quite that's the the shortest language that i know because i didn't know this existed in q that i can get a you know insert base representation of a an integer uh, but you're saying that you basically stumble across this in q it's a couple's you know characters and you can see the power of that and for the other things yeah maybe it's not as immediately as obvious you know what what the motivation behind you know the design choices is but very quickly you start to realize that um you know the other things made sense. This probably makes sense too. And it's just going to be a little bit of um, playing around with it to realize that, you know, it's, it's because of the utility of it, that it's right. Like I can give you two more examples of where it just blew my mind. Um, so when you take the, the pipe operator and, or the ampersand, right, the, well, what most people would think is and, or, 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 or sorry, uh, yeah, and, or, or, turns out that um, when you apply those to binary values, they are actually max, uh, and min, uh, and in Q, and maybe, I don't know, APL, but if you use the OR operator on two vectors, um, and they don't have just binary values, they have one, two, 10, 100, you actually get the max of the two vectors. Um, and that that extension of what I knew from Perl and C, like if I use pipe, pipe, right? Like that was OR. Uh, that, that concept of, well, if you just think a little bit beyond Boolean values and you have integer values, that pipe value, the pipe of or, if you say two or four, it actually means four. Uh, it's the maximum of the two and the ampersand would be the minimum of the two. And so like that just, I was like, wow, like that's why, why do you need another operator for and and or or max and min when you can use the same one because it conceptually has the same meaning. Another version of this, which is, I find it rare to use, but truly 
uh, I thought brilliant. And again, maybe it, its origins are from APL is the where operator. When you have a vector of booleans and you say where on the vector of booleans, it gives you the list of integers of where they are. Great. But it turns out, you know, I was like, I ran where on a list of values that were not Boolean, but one, two, and five. And it like gave me, you know, if, if it's one, it gave me uh, one, zero. And then if the next value was two, it gives me two ones uh, and, and so on. Um, and I was like, yeah, that, that at, its, at its limit, that is the where for a Boolean, but it's so much more generic than that, more general. And that you know taking all the knowledge that i had learned by myself and just it just just it just exploded in my mind every time i saw how an operator when used in one way had one meaning but if you change the type or change the values it was internally consistent but gave you something brand new out of it and that was it was just it was it was just kept finding more and more of these things is that how where works in all the other array because i know i think this actually came up once marshall when we were talking about um one of the most amazing uh, inverse I, I discovered. And then you were like, I did that, which was the where inverse. Uh, and then you're like, yeah, I did that. In but that only, that makes the most sense for Booleans or for a Boolean result. Well, no, that's not really true. Never mind. Yeah, you could, you could yeah. do it technically on the, but so anyways, the original question no, is, it, does. It's important on non-Booleans too. I was uh, just, uh, that was not right. So, yeah. So the, to, to your point, to, to your question is, why did I just attach myself to the language? And it, it was because I wanted to answer business questions. I didn't want to build plumbing, you know, get this fixed message from here to there. I wanted to answer questions and, and build alpha or signals and trade. Um, and this language just brought me to such a high level and allowed me to focus on the business problem um, and not worry about all the code I had to write, like I forgot the quotes, like you could write at the uh, speed of thought, like you could code at the speed of thought. It was just, I think that's one of the phrases we were using back then. And that was, it was so true. Like I, I had an idea in a couple lines of code, I could answer that question. So many times, you know, someone next to me like, well, I wonder what would happen or I wonder what the value is. Well, what is the most likely thing? You're like, well, stop asking these questions, get the data. You know, in 10 minutes, you'll have the answer. Stop asking questions. Uh, once you have the data and you have Q, your, your answers uh, come fast and furious. So that's, that, 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 you know, it made me more efficient, more productive. Um, and that's how I valued my time. Um, I then spent a, a year or two going back to C++ again. Uh, and it was, the compiler was killing me. I, I just, it, it was a, you know, it led me to different places over time, but it, it was not a fun period of my time again. Um, like I was just, I felt unproductive. And yes, I was building high performance systems, um, but I was missing the KDB. Uh, and so luckily the career moved back towards KDB again. But um, it, it's all about me and, and my productivity and my time. Um, I really enjoy it. I, it. It really makes me feel like um, I'm empowered. Yeah, that that should be like our our motto or slogan coding at the speed of thought, because it's like not, we're going to irritate some of the listeners by bringing this up again, or I will, but uh, the advent of code day six this morning, literally like once I understood the problem, I was like, this is like three or four things that are like, you know, not bread and butter, but like very idiomatic. If you've been doing enough array language stuff and it's just like, you do the first one, couple characters, second one, four characters, 
boom, boom, and like 10 or 12 characters. And like literally in like a couple minutes, you've solved the problem. And to try and do that in C++, like I don't even have the algorithms in the standard header. Like I will probably by C++ 32 uh, once they get all of the quote unquote sort of like range adapters and stuff. But like in order to do a sliding or a windows and then like, uh, you know, unique and all this stuff. And even once I have those in order to spell them requires so much more typing. Like I'm sure there are people, maybe not most of our listeners, but out there they would hear this and they'd be like, it's, you know, how much, like, is it really that much of a tax that you have to spell some namespaces and that, you know, slicing is spelt with, you know, six or seven characters and then in order to pass a lambda? And the answer is yes. Like, it doesn't make that an unusable language. But like, in order to what you just said, code at the speed of thought, it completely gets in the way of that. And then the first time you do it, you're probably going to not do it correctly. And because you weren't, what was it? Um, who was it that said uh, coding by successive approximation? Um, that was from one of our past episodes. I think that was like either... Uh, Stephen Apter or Joel Kaplan, one of them. It might have been Stephen Apter. And it's this idea that because you're in a REPL, like, and I know the four things I want to do, you do the first one and then you immediately see if that's what you were expecting. Whereas in C++, you got to write the whole thing and then like figure out, you know, like you said, you're fighting with the compiler to, is this code actually working? Whereas, yeah, in these languages, you you sort of figure out the way. Coding at the speed of the thought. I really like that. That 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 ability for me, at least, was enhanced um when I was at, uh, at Morgan Stanley, I had written an Emacs most. I'm, I'm an Emacs user um, for my, my life, basically. And um, I was like, all right, well, here's a new language. I need a mode for it. So I had written it, but then left Morgan Stanley, and I had lost it. So I had to rewrite it again from scratch. And so, again, I wasn't going to fall into the trap again this time. So I, I wrote it at home, and then I put it on the – many years later, I put it on the Emacs uh, package management, Elpa, uh, Melpa. And so that ability to write code and buffer one and with two keystrokes injected into the session in, 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 uh, in buffer two, that you know, successive approximation, I'm not constantly hitting the up arrow to retype, up arrow to retype. I've got like key bindings where I you know, type a little bit of code and I evaluate it and I evaluate it and evaluate it. For me, it's really, really fast to go through testing that way. Um, I don't know what other people do with Q and whether it's Jupyter Notebooks or, or what, um, you know, they have other, you know, VS Code, they're coming out with one. But for me, that ability to code in one buffer and evaluate the code immediately, um, it's got two things. One is that it, um, it, it's, it's fast, but the other thing is I don't lose my work, right? The code is in the file that I've saved. All of my history, every time I tinker around with anything, I write it in a file and I evaluate it by sending it to the queue process or even a remote queue process, which is even more powerful. Um, but all my work is always in a buffer somewhere, as opposed to like if you're in a, on the command line and you hit up arrow. I mean, I know from what I, from what I understood is when Arthur writes his code, he, like, he writes these really long lines horizontally, and it's because he double clicks and pastes, double clicks and pastes to see, you know, to test. Um, and uh, for me, uh, I can get away with not doing that, you know, really long lines because, you know, Emacs will, you know, find the one line or the, 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 the function definition. It'll go back to the beginning and to the end and then inject that. Um, so th that for me has been, you know, transformative. I can't imagine how well, I, you know, I couldn't have written the books without, without that ability. Bob? One of the things 
that strikes me because we had a podcast where we tried to define Iversonian languages, and it was quite the uh, episode because Marshall revealed his inner bouncer and and was quite uh, strong about moving Iversonian languages in and out of the club, as uh, Connor described it. He moved Q out of the club, or maybe at least moved it to the back, out by the door. Yeah, well, we should be clear that we're we're splitting things into two categories, array languages, which we all agree Q is an array language. And then there's the, the inner Iversonian languages. Right, so we weren't taking Q out of array languages, that, no. Um, I, I'm willing to say Q is definitely on the on the boundary of that, of that kind of group of languages. And this least. is where my comment slash question comes in. Um, you are, I think... An expert in Q. I can't. I can't think of any other way to describe you as an expert. A Q in god, Q. isn't that what they call them? <laughs> I would say Q god. Sure. Yeah. Stephen with that. his hand in his face. Um, his face in his hand. <laughs> Am I not supposed to? Is that like you're not? We're not supposed to say promote that word. All right. Cut it. Cut it from the record. <laughs> oh, let me do my little. Let me do my little rant about that. Um, Nick was saying earlier how a lot of the people who first started using uh, K, the ancestor language of, of, of Q, or really the, the language in which Q is implemented, uh, had come from an APL background. Uh, and you could, give, you could give them a quick summary of what's in Q. And it's like, oh, yeah, I get it. And I can see how to use it because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm part, of the, part of the legacy. And... Um, then a lot of other people came in and were confronted with this almost minimal documentation and, uh, and it's intro level workshops in queue, which tell people how to get started and get productive quite quickly. And they're very good at that. Oh, don't you worry about this. Just do this. Uh, and, and you get, you get busy in queue. And, um, what's missing in between is a, is a proper, a formal grasp of the language where you actually understand the syntax and how to parse it and, and, and all the details and um, the kind of things you need to go to Q-tips perhaps to um, to read and understand. Uh, and I think as a consequence, a lot of the people coming in just looked at what stuff, uh, the, the code that was being written by Arthur, by Nick, by Stephen Apter, and it's just like, I have no, I have very little idea how that works. And even when I do manage to understand it, I can't imagine ever being able to write that stuff myself. I've got no access to the thought processes which generate those solutions. And I would submit, Connor, it's the thought processes that generate the solutions that particularly fascinate you. Uh, one of the consequences was people just said, well, these are the Q gods. These are the Q gods. They write stuff in that is divine, and we, even when we can understand it, we've got no idea how they thought of it. And the phrase honors the skill, but it also locates it out of reach. And I'm on a Promethean mission to break this down. I absolutely am um, going to do that because Q, like any other language, yields to study and practice. It's not reserved for a race of semi-divine beings and that's why whenever i hear the phrase q gods <laughs> head in the hands time again all right we won't use that phrase uh it's a it's a phrase uh what do you call it it's a term of art from the past uh but definitely i know that feeling because i remember one i can't remember the problem but i posted it and marshall 
did something that was like, you know, 25% of the characters and it made use of inverse on some primitive that because inverse doesn't really exist. It exists in APL, but not as a single character. And in BQN, it's, I think, a lot more uses for it. Anyways, I saw it, I stared at it and I was like, what is going on here? And then like 20 minutes later, after like step by step trying to figure it out, I was like, oh my goodness. Like I would never have thought of this in a hundred years. Like I would never come up with like that kind of solution. So I've, I've been there. Anyways, back to Bob. Cause Bob was in the middle of asking Nick as a Q expert, not a Q God. Cause there's no such things. Uh, only, only historically speaking, Go ahead, Bob. <laughs> well, thank, th- actually, thanks so much, Marshall and Stephen, for the clarification on that, because I think it frames my question better. Is Q far enough removed from APL or K, you know, K being, you know, Arthur Whitney language, but Q sounds like it's an outgrowth of K. Is that far enough removed from Ken Iverson to not call it an Iversonian language? Is it actually something different again? When we had our first conversation and you told me that arrays in APL and J and probably, uh, you know, uh, BQN were all, you know, uh, one long vector in some sense with like, you know, offsets for, for the subarrays, that was like, oh, I mean, I know that in, you know, Fortran or whatever, like uh, underneath the hood, like that's how things are done. In, in yeah, that's how they're stored. Most of the many C libraries and things like that. Um, but coming from, from Q, I thought that, a list of lists was the right way to do it in some sense, be- because that's how, like in my mind, it was a list. Um, I didn't see the benefit of saving everything in one long list. Uh, uh, you know, like when you do memory management, if you need a new list of, of the same size, you don't need to go reallocate the whole vector. You can just go find a new, a new bit of memory. And um, I suppose the offset of, you know, you know exactly where to find the next element as opposed to doing a, a, a pointer lookup. Um, makes it a little bit faster, but um, I don't know if if we want to in- indicate that that in and itself that migration off of one long um, list could push it out of the Iversonian language. Uh, yeah, so you're ready to kick K out. I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you're going the wrong way, Nick. <laughs> this is what we brought you on for. <laughs> but listen, listen. There is so much more to this this language, and 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 I I, I want to make sure that. The fact that you have SQL in the language teaches people more how to code in in a vector format than just having uh, a, a J by itself. So, so for example, when I teach the, the, I, I, I teach a course at, at Carnegie Mellon, uh, market microstructure and algorithmic trading, and the foundation of it is a bunch of KDB databases. So we have a New York Stock Exchange TAC database. We have a crypto database that, that I've set up, um, a, a, a S&P Muni Futures database. And we, we teach the, the students to analyze the data that's on the database in, in Q. And when all they're doing is writing select statements, there's no room for a for loop. Like, here's my select statement, and I need to write, I need to write a new function that analyzes the data. Well, that function better take a column as its parameter uh, and things like that. And so people start thinking in SQL, you start thinking about group buys, you're thinking about, you're thinking of these high level algorithms. And so when people are, when quants, for example, are learning to code in Q, typically it's with select statements often, not the underlying raw functions. And that approach to programming is not new to anyone who's seen a database. It is, 
it's a vectorial way of doing things. And then when you tell them, oh, well, you know, not only do you have a database, but you can write your own functions in the database. And then they're like, oh my God, this is so powerful. And so they write a, a function that can be used along with their select statements, their updates, their, you know, their, their group buys and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, if, if I were to, you know, come up with a new paradigm of teaching, um, of Q at least, not APLs, like you start people off with the select statements to force them in their mind of doing things in a vector approach. And then you say, okay, well, here are some functions you can write in. And by the way, everything is a column or everything is, you know, um, your where clauses of vector booleans that you're just filtering on and things like that. That, it's not hard for anyone to understand it when you approach it that way, which makes the code when you read it actually a lot cleaner. The, the other thing about the language is that, yes, it's got SQL in it. I mean, its own dialect, QSQL, but in a normal database, when you write SQL, you can't run a bit of code and save it off as a temporary variable and then apply another translation to that. It's one massive SQL statement that gets really ugly. And you can do your best to factor it, but ultimately it all gets kind of parsed by the, the server and, and all by itself. Q allows you to write functions where you have a single select statement, a single update, and you can read it and you say, okay, here's the trans transition from line one to line two, I get it, line two to line three. And so where people are writing these vectorial great SQL statements, and maybe they're SQL gods, you know, like you, you, you know those people, like, I don't know how you can imagine, how did you do that? When you turn that into KDB, into Q, the code gets, if you do it right, you, you're allowed to at least make it a lot cleaner by doing transitions into one, here's my select, here's my join, um, and so on. So I really think that it, it, it bridges a gap between how the one domain people do think vectorially uh, and a programming language, which is implemented to write vectoral functions uh, coding extremely fast. So I, that combination, yes, it maybe maybe not kick it out of of of, of Iversonian, but the whole adding an SQL to it is um, Arth, uh, you know, Whitneyan Whitneyan languages. What, what we we can call some other some other languages that include SQL. Can J still be a Whitneyan language? Is what we're really wondering about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. JDB, I don't. It doesn't have a select statements in it, does it? Uh, it does have JD that has, but that's not. I don't think it's integrated as closely. Uh, I don't know quite how SQL and Q works, but um, JD is more like a library you can call. And same thing goes for APL with uh, DDB, dialect database. So I want to I want to stay on the whether we're kicking these languages in or out. But before before we do that. <laughs> I want to follow up on, so you, you, you said that basically SQL's SQL is such a great match uh, to be bundled and paired with an array language because it is a style of programming that is not welcoming to loops whatsoever. Yes. Is, is, is that, that, so yes. you wouldn't go as it far. It forces you. It would, you wouldn't go as far to say that SQL is an array language but you would say that it's a perfect fit because you're never doing these or you're maybe you would is it not well I, this is my my lack of knowledge about sql because i've you know full disclosure probably only written maybe five production lines of sql code like i've done a few leak code things but like ultimately it, it boils down to um a filter, right? You got you got a where clause, and you've got a, a select. You know, you're picking a few columns. Um, you've got a group by, 
um, and a, a few joins, right? I mean, beyond that, and they're all... I guess now that I think about it, everything is stored in a table, which... Yeah, although some, t some tables are row-based, but ultimately you're, you're operating on columns. Holy, so. Are we having like a huge eureka moment? I, we got to go check the Wikipedia page. Is, is SQL <laughs> the world's most popular array language? Other than, other than, well, Excel, Excel's not, but I can see Adam's raising his eyebrows, but like, um, Nick's got a good point. Like it's a, what I would say is that database tables are very similar to, but they're different from arrays. So like one thing, the joins on database tables, you have nothing like that on arrays. So that's something that SQL does and APL doesn't. And on the other hand, APL, like uh, an outer product, um, or, I mean, in, Q or K, you'd use each left and each right for this sort of thing. That's something that you don't really get in. Um, well, I guess that's actually an outer join, so that's not a good example. But um, I was going to say, isn't there like a isn't there a join that maps to outer product? Yeah, there's like, and that's the thing is uh, previously what. Um, Although the outer the, the thing about the outer join is that it doesn't um, it doesn't have the same structure, so it doesn't give you the multi dimensional array out. Uh, it just it flattens everything. So that that's another difference between you know how the database paradigm versus the array paradigm works. So I would say they're very closely related. They can use a lot of common functionality, um, but I wouldn't call SQL an array language, is my opinion. This is so because now I'm thinking in my head is that like SQL has like a huge branding because like when I think of SQL, like my thought is blah like. Like, cause it's, it's like, it's, you know, capital letters for all their functions. It's just like, it's, you want to go to access and do the drag and drop thing where it just auto generates you the, you know, the, the statement, because like, I've never really seen a SQL statement and gone, Oh my goodness, that's the most beautiful line of code. It's usually like a, a thing of necessity that you're specifically, you know, trying to filter, join, do all this stuff to get a specific set of information and SQL is the tool that you reach so for that. But the reason, one of the reasons why I think SQL in, in Q at least, is useful is, uh, I mean, beyond just the fact that people can read what's actually happening, it adds a little, uh, you know, verbal fluff to, to the code, but it, it directs you to what's actually happening. But above that, beyond that, when you're passing massive data sets back and forth, like in APL, if you have a, I don't know if, you know, when your data structure gets beyond a certain size, whether it's a Two, two lists, so that's, that's easy to deal with. You can index it with zero and one or something to that effect. But then you need to move to a dictionary, right? You, you have named variables that get, you know, here's, here's the key to the dictionary and the value. That, that dictionary gets passed to other functions. Um, at some point, you need to refer to things by name in your code. And uh, if every time you get past a data structure, you have to index into it and save it into a local variable, you know, like uh, quantity, save it into Q, uh, QTY, or, you know, and size, save it into size. And then you have vectors on your hand and you're going to run all your vector operators on that data. Why do you need to keep pulling it out of the data structure and putting it into a local variable just to apply these functions? Why can't you use the functions in the scope of the data structure? And so what QSQL allows you to do is not only on a table, but also on a dictionary, you can say select a times B from D, where D is a dictionary. Um, and so like you've now scoped, you've moved your code into the data structure instead of pulling those vectors out of the data structure. That, that scoping of variables into the domain of the, the table or the dictionary actually simplifies the code quite a bit. 
you, you, you don't have, like I said, you don't have to pull the data out of the data structure, operate on it, and then put another copy of it back in. Yeah, this is, this is exactly similar to the reason I really like combinators is because combinators do the exact same thing where a lot of the times the only reason you need to store something into a local is because you need to use it twice. But like a combinator, you know, makes that unnecessary. And so then you can just write a single chain of operations and materializing things in a local for the sake of being able to do something with it is no longer necessary, which is, is very useful. Um, it sounds, it sounds very similar to that. Well, I just, I just looked up and there's something called multidimensional arrays in SQL that was added fairly recently. Now I'm curious. <laughs> now it is. <laughs> now, now it is. Yeah, it says the newest standard SQL 2019 adds part 15 multi-dimensional arrays md array type and operators i don't know sounds like something yeah but we did discuss you know it's about how it's used not about what it supports so i mean having multi multi-dimensional arrays is a lot different from you know putting everything in terms of multi-dimensional arrays that's true all right, I just looked at the time. We've we've blown. All right, Adam's gonna say something. No, I was just going going to whack PQN for having things that are not in multidimensional arrays. That's all. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, when they're when they're not arrays at all, but your collection type is a multidimensional array. Everything is an array. <laughs> not in PQN. So, so to bring it back to sort of more pragmatic terms, when I talked to Nick before, one of the things that often comes up from people who are interested in array languages is, can I get a job in working with array languages? And in a lot of cases, it's difficult, I think. In some cases, you need to work with a specific company. Um, in other cases, you need to find companies that are interested in this kind of area of quantification, and I guess you can sort of carve out your your area and maybe use the array languages that way. But I think with Q, it's an example of an array language where there actually are a fair number of jobs if you actually learn that language. Is that is that right, Nick? Yeah, so there, I would say that there's a, a range of types of jobs, right? The fact that KDB is, quote-unquote, the world's fastest time series database makes it a place where if you want a job in technology uh, and you learn uh, Q and the, the way databases are stored on disk and things like that, you can get a job as a database administrator. Um, but that there's, that's a very, you know, as if you were, as if you were an Oracle DBA, um, you would have a job as a, as a KDB database administrator. But because KDB is written because the database is written in a Q language, you actually then are learning, like just because you've learned how to support an Oracle database doesn't give you a, a launch pad, a, 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 tram, a, a trampoline into some other career. But once you've learned Q to support KDB and how it's worked, you're actually, um, you have the ability to transition your career uh, because a lot of the people who are analyzing the data are using Q, uh, the, the, the data, as just the data, and then they're analyzing it to do research in the language itself, and that that it works so well together because the storage is the same. So you can then move over to get a job on a, a quant desk, um, even if you're very junior. But if you have the mind and you have a mathematical background and you want to learn something about finance or something, uh, you can, if you're lucky, you can get that transition. As as long as you keep asking questions, you can transition from just the DBA into more of a quantitative role. Um, my goal is to promote the language as much as I can, and uh, that, that's why I do teach it. And even at work, 
I train as many people as possible because I love programming in a language and I don't want to see it go away. So one of the gripes is that we can't find enough people who know the language. And you're saying, can you get a job in it? The answer is yes, there's just not enough people. And so the more people I can train, the better it is for me because the more of a, a footprint Q gets around the industry um, and people don't just throw it out the window because we just can't find anybody. So I think the best way to promote it is is to, to train as many people as possible um, and not just not just on the database administrative side, but also the end user side uh, and, and analytics and things like that. So there's you can download like we've mentioned before, you can download the home version uh, as long as you're connected to the Internet and you can use it, you can play with it. Um, I think, you know, KX, one of the more recent things that they're they're, they're doing is recognizing that uh, Python is, you know, the standard in uh, data science. And so how, how can we get KDB uh, to play nicely with Python? There's been many attempts. There's PyQ and BedPy. Um, um, and now they have, uh, KX has one called uh, PyKX. Um, they all have, they're, they're slightly different in all their, in all their implementations. But the, the idea is, okay, at some point, there's just too much data and you need to treat it as a database and you need to send the code to the data. Summarize it, distill it down to minutely buckets or something to that effect, then pull it into Python and do your data science on it. Um, it's not gonna be possible to do um, a lot of data science on every change in the national best bid and offer uh, for, for every symbol. That would be very, your machine wouldn't be able to handle all that memory. Um, so that, that combination of can I code data science in Python, moving some of the heavy lifting over to the Q side, all in the same memory space, perhaps, or perhaps over the network, um, that, that combination is um, probably a really great, the synergies there are really good. And I think we'll see a lot more of that going forward. So it's, it's more like Q becomes a really fast filter for large amounts of data. And then you can use Python routines to actually um, work on that data with a way that you might be more familiar with. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I don't want to limit Q to just that, uh, you know, a filter. Uh, but yes, I mean, there's, there's some analytics when you can push it to the server. Um, it's a lot faster. I mean, and even when and we talk about moving data to the cloud, you pay for data uh, egress. Right? You put all your data in the cloud. Every time you run a query, you have to pay for the data that you pull out. Well, does it really make sense to pull all that data to Python, analyze it, distill it down? Or can you send your, your, your like five line, 10 line Q function to your data set that's on the cloud, distill it down to what you need and only pay for the results that are coming out that you will then be performing your, your machine learning on. So you're like your, your transformation into feature, feature extraction, that probably should be done in KDB. Uh, putting it all, generating your feature sets or something like that, and uh, distilling it and then pulling it out. Um, yeah, there's a definitely domain, and it's 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 not a clear line, but there's advantages of having skills in both sides of that. I think we uh, want to ask John Ernest about this because I remember he's uh, I think he said on the Apple Farm that he really doesn't like the idea of you know having K or Q like inside another language as doing doing you know just some things he, he wants it to be the whole the whole system so think of the following you've got you've got python which 
is very slow with numerical calculations. Yeah. So they added NumPy, right? NumPy is a, a you know a vector language uh, modeled on APL in some sense, right? Um, but then they didn't have databases, a table or anything like that. R had a table, so pandas was created. Um, but Panda has its warts, and even the you know um, the author uh, has as a you know a, a blog about what the things he wish he could do better with with pandas. Well, what if you had a version of pandas that was perfect, that that was very well managed its memory, was fast with the joins, um, and was also um, could share its memory space with uh, NumPy vectors, so you could take advantage of all the algorithms which are already there. Why wouldn't you? swap out pandas with a kdb table under the hood i think that's about what i would ask john because <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah I, I do agree that sounds pretty useful to me um and this is something that i've kind of hoped to do with bqn but haven't uh, done any real work on so uh yeah it does seem like a good direction and that's in some sense also the direction that shafti is going um tr trying to build the you know uh -huh. uh, you know keep the sqls keep the the vectors but make it as, as fast as possible. Because ultimately, uh, if you drill down to it, the reason why operations on Panda vectors is slower than uh, NumPy vectors in some sense is because uh, the NumPy vectors don't handle nulls. So like if you do the sum of a vector of nulls in NumPy, you get a null out. Mm. If you do sum on a, a vector in Pandas, you say sum, it will realize that some of them are nulls and it will just throw them away. Or if you have average or things like that. So NumPy adds a lot of the, um, Sorry, pandas adds a lot of the, the friendliness that Q also provides, right? The average value of a vector in Q is the average excluding the nulls. The same would be with pandas. But NumPy is like the raw metal. You ask for the average, it happened to have nulls, your average is null. Um, so it depends on where on the, on the, on the, on the, you know, how fast do you need to go versus how much uh, ease of use do you want? And Shakti will be the ultimate in performance. Uh, giving up a little bit of the of the ease of, of use for like average and things like that so that, that i think that's where, where shakti is going to come in and, and handle much more memory much more faster um, taking you know numpy expanding it to the ultimate version of pandas that that you can imagine all right well <clears throat> we've blown by the hour mark as i mentioned before like 10 minutes ago um but i do before we sort of wrap up um we, you talked a little bit about um, Q-tips and sort of, you know, what went into that book. And, um, uh, but you, you have another book, Fun Q, and also you mentioned the CMU course, which I had no idea you taught, uh, which I looked up um, the market microstructure and uh, trading algorithm tra algorithmic trading. Uh, maybe can you give us a, a little bit of, um, you know, what's in Fun Q and how is that different than Q-tips? And uh, my guess is that it's not possible for people to go and just, you know, take your CMU course as if it was a Coursera course. Um, but I guess uh, maybe if you want to pitch that a little bit too for <laughs> students that are in high school and potentially going to school, and maybe they'll go to CMU just so they can take that course. It's actually, so with respect to the course, it's a, it's a graduate, it's a graduate course. So if you're going back to graduate school and you want to get a degree in uh, computational finance, um, it is, you know, the only, probably, I, I don't know if there's any other courses, you know, in other, uh, universities that would teach uh, KDB, um, but it's um, yeah, it's 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 trying. To, I know where these students are going to get jobs. They're often on trading desks. They're they're at banks or they're at hedge funds. And even hedge funds these days, this KDB has got a big presence. And so my goal is um, to give people the skills uh, 
that when they when they leave the course and they get on the trading desk or wherever wherever it is, you know, people are like, wow, like where did you learn that? Like I want them to be up and running, uh, efficient and effective as soon as they get there, not having to be taught. Um, of course, yeah, there's some domain knowledge they'll need to learn, but um, my, my goal is that to be, you know, don't want to be proud of the people who graduate, so that it puts you know gives me a good a good name, but also allows, like I said before, there's a a, a farm of people who know Q and KDB so that um, when when uh, trading heads are deciding what should we invest in, it's not like, oh, it, why should we why should we use Q? I just can't find anybody. So yeah, so that's like at Carnegie Mellon. That's the course. It's the last course they take before they graduate. I just taught my last. It's once a year I teach, um, November, December, uh, October, November, December. And um, I just taught my last class last week. And uh, you know I'm free, open to to build up the material again uh, for for next year uh, over through the summer. Uh, KX is nice enough to give us an educational license every year, um, so that's that that's really great. the The hard part on my side is loading the data into the database, because I, 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 I in a silly sense, I thought, okay, let me go find February two thousand and twenty, the spike of the COVID era. Uh, right when the markets collapsed, I said, okay, I'm going to load that data as into a, a one-month database. And uh, the machine I happened to have didn't have enough disk space, didn't have enough RAM. Like I, I was uh, fighting with it, so I had to pull out all my skills on trying to, you know, you know, fit a, a square into a, a round peg or whatever, you know, a square peg into a round hole. I was like, I had to trim the sides of the data set. I had to do it one, one security at a time, but I finally got it up and running. Once you can get the data stored in KDB, the memory of the machine doesn't matter. The, the amount of disk space, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. Like it's all compressed and things like that. And querying it is fine. There's no limitation there. It's, it's how do you get the data from the massive CSV zipped file into the KDB format? Because, as, because it's vectorized, people don't actually load all the columns all at once, or they don't load all the rows all at once. They're just always asking for a subset of the data. So once you get the data there, it's, it's all good. Um, anyway, so that's, that's the course. Um, yeah, I, I take a, a a whirlwind tour through Q-tips, basically. Um, you know, I, I run through a lot of the material that's in there, and then of course a lot of um, uh, financial knowledge as well, a lot of theory and uh, practical knowledge that that has gone that I've learned over the years. So that that that's the program I think. So the book Fun Q um, is is uh, very different than Q-tips and is very different than the class. I'd spent about five years. Um, implementing different machine learning algorithms in KDB. Well, because I learned the first course I took was the Coursera course uh, in MATLAB. And all those were implemented in, in MATLAB. So machine learning was implemented in MATLAB. And I said, well, well what's so special about MATLAB that we couldn't do this in Q? And so I, I took it as a, a, a self-challenge to, to, to prove that it could be done. <clears throat> and I learned a few, a few things along the way. And, what was lacking in Q that MATLAB had and, you know, and things like that. So after I had implemented all the algorithms for the course, I went on and looked for more machine learning algorithms and I implemented those and I just kept going and everything was just so elegant, like three or four lines of code um, and all the functions I had written to implement algorithm A turned out were reusable for algorithm B and C and D. Um, the the amount of code reuse was was so I think fantastic and beautiful that I had, I just really wanted to share it. So um, the the book itself is about ten chapters. Each chapter relates to a different machine learning algorithm, and you know they're ordered so that you know K 
k-nearest neighbors, I believe, is first, and then k-mean. So it starts with the simple ones, and it gets more and more complex. And towards the end, um, those same algorithms show up again when we do um, uh, collaborative filtering. So like when you know Amazon, people like you also, you know, people who bought bunny slippers also bought, you know, uh, panda bear uh, sweaters, something to that effect, right? The, um, that algorithm can be implemented in some sense as a like k-nearest neighbors algorithm, as long as you uh, handle null values. So I had to go back to the k-nearest neighbors function just with a couple extra characters, handle null values, and then out of the box, the code could work for collaborative filtering. Um, that's just one version of collaborative filtering. There's other ones that use like alternating least squares and things like that, which is, again, is just linear regression, which comes out of the box with, with KDB as well. And so all these things, uh, it turned out, were quite elegantly implemented in Q. And um, I, I wanted to, to share that beauty with, with people. I wanted the people, as I mentioned before, who happened to be database administrators who perhaps had a math degree to kind of move their on their career path from just knowing Q to move to learning and understanding at the crux, what are these machine learning algorithms? Are they so fancy and complex? No, it turns out they're not. They're, they're a couple lines of Q code. Um, and and maybe, maybe when they're written in C and C++, you can get some extra performance out of it. Um, but ultimately, a lot of these things are um, be, because you can move it off to the GPU. But if we could get Q and uh, KDB uh, operators to offload to the the GPU, we might actually get a lot of performance out of the existing implementation that I have. So that's kind of where, where FunQ came from um, and, and why I shared it. I was just hoping that we, we could just demonstrate. You can, I really like to show how Q can be used beyond just storing things as a database, like how you can use the language and build really interesting products out of it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I mean, it sounds like if you were, you know, early in your education and you're at college or university right now, it is a, not a hundred percent strategy, but close to a hundred percent strategy. If you go through your degree, get your CS credentials, and then either if you happen to be at CMU, I guess you probably can't get access to that course. But if you go and read a couple of these books, Q for mortals, you know, Q tips, fun Q, and basically become an expert in this language, uh, odds are you can line up a, a pretty good job on wall street or in some finance firm, um, with these skills, because it definitely sounds like there's demand for it. And it's currently, there's not enough, you know, Q developers to uh, satiate the demand for them at these firms. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely, you know, I wanted to be very early in my college education. I wanted to be a quant. I ended up being an actuary, which is like a long lost sibling, uh, less exciting, less sexy. But, uh, for a long time, like I had read every single, you know, uh, Michael Lewis book and, you know, quants by Scott Patterson. Like I, I've probably read like 40 books on, you know, wall street. And I was just obsessed with like this idea of, you know, making money for the sake of making money and this, you know, past version of myself. But, uh, you know, back then, if someone had told me, just go learn this language and you can basically not guarantee yourself a job, but really set yourself up well to to land a you know, well-paying job. And, you know, these firms that have been around for for decades, uh, I probably would have taken that to heart. And so if there's but it's not and, and I try to teach the I try to emphasize to the students that, OK, yes, this this looks like a bizarre language and you're going to be twisting your mind around a, quite a bit to get through mm -hmm. it. But I promise you that the lessons you learn on how to write vectorially will, will keep you in good stead, even if you put Q behind you and you go back to pandas. Because like, 
there's like you know, if you, there's a web page, you know, how do you make your pandas code faster? Like the first one is like don't use iter rows, right? Like don't uh, and, you know don't like there's there's a couple more like in passing your data to the function and don't iterate across. Like you know, there's so many of these concepts that are really important and when you see when you're forced to do them in queue that you don't even have the option well, technically i guess you, you do but like the um it really teaches you how to be you know uh you know what is that the mechanical sympathy part you know how to be sympathetic with the uh, with the machine under the hood and um those lessons should should do you well when you move back into pandas as well and you, you like you look at code and you're like no that's not the right way to do it pandas does allow you to write Quite efficiently, not you know, with NumPy and things like that. You just have to have the right mentality. And we we we've tied a lot to it to finance because that's an industry right now that uses these tools and has you know has a strong bond between the context works well for the tools. But when you think about it, it's much wider than that because there's so many other areas of information resources trying to balance things and cross different resources. Uh, all these different choices involve distilling a lot of information down to a point where you can make a decision. That's essentially what you're doing. And these skills are super important as you move ahead and you get into, a, I think, a, a world where we're getting more constrained. We have to look for these niches where we can be more productive. These languages fit really well into taking that big information, coming down to a smarter decision, and specifically, as you're saying with Q, the ability to pivot and change it quickly, you might not be as fast to actually put an algorithm into process, you know, the C++ may be quicker, but you can be much more quicker in changing it if it's not working. And I think that's an ability that that flexibility and that agility is really important. Coding at the speed of thought. It's my, my, my highlight of the, the podcast for sure is uh, that's, I think, something that's been in the back of my head, but have never, have never heard it articulated like that. Um, but yeah, we've we've gone way over. But thank you for spending all this time with us again, Nick, as, as a guest this time and not as a as a panelist. Um, this was super awesome, and I, I definitely know that there's going to be some listeners that um, are hearing this and are going to be going and picking up Q because of it. Because uh, yeah, it's a language that is there's demand out there for people who who know the language. So um, we will, as always, put the links in the show notes to both of Nick's books, and we'll we'll throw a link uh, to the the course that he teaches as well. Although it is uh, it is reserved for uh, grad students at uh, Carnegie Mellon, but you know we might have a couple listeners that are grad students at Carnegie Mellon. Maybe they they've even already taken the course. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks so much for for coming on. I guess Bob, we should plug the uh, contact at arraycast.com. Did I get that right this time? You nailed it. Contact at arraycast.com if you would like to get in touch with us or leave a comment. We really appreciate that. Nick, do you want to plug anything that's coming up that you might be doing that you want to put pressure on yourself? There's two things that I want to look at. Um, there, there's this concept of, you know, again, I'm always thinking about new ways to write books, uh, new topics to write books on. Um, one of them is, is about PyKX. I don't know if if there's enough material to fill up a whole book on that, um, but I've taken my challenge to to kind of to to talk about what would make why would putting a Q table under Python be so fantastic, and uh, what are the the functionality that it would provide, and in what cases would it be faster? You know, one example I have is when you use the rolling function in Q, oh, sorry, in Python, compared to like a moving average function in, in KDB, it is horrendously slow. 
Um, and it's just a matter of how it's implemented. Rolling is quite generic and moving sum or moving average or moving deviation is actually quite specific uh, knowledge that um, it's, it's a kind of thing, it's a memory versus a performance trade-off. So there's examples where you do things in, in pandas and you're like, oh my God, can it possibly be any slower? Uh, and then when you do it in Q, because the primitives were implemented with performance in mind, it's actually quite fast. So that comparison of you could do it this way or you could do it this way if you had pi kx, that, that's one thing in my mind that I, I, I'm, I'm starting to look at. And the other one is um, if you had a, a Q god in your back pocket type of thing. Now, I don't want to use the word Q god. Uh, I personally I like the word um, in, in this, there's in, in China and in Hong Kong, there are these cartoons um, where there's a, a bald guy and his name is Old Master Q. And there's just a series, a long series of cartoons. And they're really, really funny, but his name is Old Master Q. Um, and so I was thinking that, you know, if you had Old Master Q in your back pocket, uh, one of the things that you, you would, he would need to tell you. And so I'm working with, uh, I'm, I would like to work with uh, some, someone else. Uh, and then we would put a co-author a book together uh, where, you know, you know, we would pull out some like, let, let's, for example, if you had interview questions, you go to an, a KDB Q interview and like they ask you these horrendous questions and like, what if you had old master Q in your back pocket? How, how would he help you out? You know, and so what are the, the, the tricks of the trade that are like the, 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 the dark corners of, of Q uh, type of thing? And it wouldn't be like the first thing you'd pick up uh, you know, like, because I guess in some sense, you'd be learning the, those, um, those corners that you really shouldn't have to know about. But if you're building a trading system or a platform, maybe they're important because it's one of those gotchas. Like, you know, the question is like, what, you know, the, what is in, in numerical value, what year is this, uh, like in Q, what does the year zero stand for? Um, it turns out the millennium, change of the millennium, when KDB was a 3.0, 3.6 came out, they recentered dates to uh, zero. So the year 2011, if you cast it to an integer, you get the number zero. It's not centered on the, the epic, change of epic. So anyway, there are these, these questions like that is like, the, do you really know Q down to the nitty gritty detail? Um, so maybe I thought that there might be a, a book in there about that. Um, but yeah, nothing's been written yet. Uh, lots of thoughts have been put into it and we'll see if I have the time to get through it all. Well, there we go. Third book in the making and project. We'll have you back on when the book's done. <laughs> I guess we'll finish by once again by just saying thank you for coming on, and we will wish everyone happy array programming. Happy array programming. <laughs>